Will you turn to Jude 14 to 19 for our text today? I, I too, am looking forward to the Reformation series on the church fathers. And as we're looking at the book of Jude, I am reminded by the church father Origen, who wrote, Jude wrote an epistle, tiny in the extreme, but yet full of powerful words and heavenly grace. And as Pastor Eric has been saying, small that this letter may be, it packs a punch. And so let's pick up where Pastor Eric left off of the awful description of the apostates and the false teachers and read beginning of verse 14 all the way to verse 19. And may God plant his eternal word deep into our souls. It was about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you that in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Your word, O Lord, is a spring of living water. To whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. To the saint who is slumbering, awaken them to your word and fortify their hearts. To the saint who is assaulted, may your word be their armor and the sword by which they defend themselves from their enemies. To the soul that is unholy, may your word sanctify them. And to the soul headed to hell, may your word save them. For your word alone can make them wise to salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our study in Jude thus far is a book which has much in it that is unsavory and unpleasant to say the least. And I would say left to one's own choice and one's own like and dislikes, this is the kind of book that one would like to avoid. Now, such is the benefit of expository preaching, the concern to expound the word of God and not merely to express the ideas and the agendas of the preacher. Such is also the benefit of a reading through the whole Bible. Uh, anyone who, who follows a system of a Bible reading plan uh, takes us to know that this is the kind of book that you would probably avoid. People have their so-called favorite books and favorite chapters, and they like to pick out sections that they like and would probably not spend that much time in the book of Jude. And yet we must remember that if we believe in the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, this book is as inspired as the 23rd chapter of Psalm, as inspired as the 8th chapter of Romans, or the book of Philippians. This book of Jude, then, is the Word of God, and to neglect it is to miss one of the most important messages for the church today. And what is the message that Jude is warning against? Well, the message that, that he is writing for the church is that we must contend earnestly for the faith. Jude's one and only concern for the church is to contend for the faith, for the truth once and forever delivered to the saints. It's the language of warfare. It's the language that we are living in perilous times. 
It's the language of faithful vigilance that is necessary to contend for the faith in our present time. And you would be hard-pressed to find a more accurate and perfect description in detail of the world as it is today and of the church in the world than what you find in this little book of Jude. That picture was so well drawn by Pastor Eric in these past two Sundays of the world, seeped in godlessness, perverse immorality, loose living, and lawlessness. That is the picture. There were 13 characteristics mentioned last week. I didn't catch quite catch all 13, but I believe it was all there. But we saw the rejection of authority, the hard way of Cain, the greed of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. And you see in our world the same kind of moral conditions as at the time of the flood in Sodom and Gomorrah. Just look at the world around and about us. Look at its apostasy from God, the lawlessness that is all around us. What is the cause of the condition of the world? What is it that leads the world to become so immoral and godless and foul? Why is the world as it is today? Why is the church as she is today? Well, according to Jude, the answer is that it is always due to false teaching. Jude tells us, for certain men have crept unnoticed. Certain men have crept in unawares. That is, they had the appearance at first. They no doubt had a form of godliness, although they had denied its power. And these men were men that changed the grace of God into a license of immorality. And these were men that denied that Jesus Christ is our only Lord and Savior. They were characterized, on the one hand, by moral relativism, and on the other hand, theological liberalism. In other words, because they deny the sole saviorhood and lordship of Jesus Christ, they were denying that there were any moral absolutes to the Christian life. And so they were spreading these soul-destroying errors, and somehow they slipped in the church. Now that tells us that there is a very intimate relationship between false teaching and loose living. You always find these two together. There is an inevitable connection between the two, false living always follows false teaching. That is why the world is so ready to follow various false teaching because false teaching makes it very easier for them to live the kind of life they want to live because if they can't get rid of God, they will be able to live the life they want without being condemned by their conscience. And Jude has illustrated this in the history of the world that the problem with the world is always due firstly to false teaching. You remember, he takes the example of the Israelites in the wilderness. He says to them in verse 5, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. They were those, we are told, who were saved and delivered from the bondage of Egypt. But they went back to Egypt in their heart and cried often that they would have been better off in Egypt as slaves than in the wilderness. What was it that led to such a condition? There is only one answer to the question. Mankind has departed and fallen away from God and from his teaching. God had told them how they were to live. God had given them a law, but they turned their backs on God. The same is true of Sodom and Gomorrah. What was the cause of the the terrible pollution in those cities? The answer is the same. These were people who had turned their backs upon God. They had forsaken the teaching of God's word, and they were living according to their own 
desires and lusts. Friends, take any period in the moral degradation in the history of Israel and you will always find the same answer. Whenever they turn from God and His teaching, they always sink to the very dregs of filthy living. Now the same is true of the world today. What about our age? What about our generation? Why is the world as it is today? The answer is always the same. That mankind has turned its back on God. Just as the night follows the day, false living always follows false teaching. And when men and women cease to worship God and fail to live by His book and believe the gospel in Jesus Christ, down goes morality. And this is the context in which Jude is writing to. To contend for the faith. That's why we need to be vigilant and pray. This need to be vigilant and stand for the truth is more needed than ever because to the world, the masses have turned their backs on God and the gospel. And the church finds herself in comparatively a small remnant facing the world. And the temptation is to cower, to compromise our message, to blend in the world so as not to offend. And this is the the church by and large today, hesitant, doubtful, uncertain of her own word and message, afraid, concerned about her appearances to the world, forgetting the purpose that has been placed on her to call the world to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, I know it's not an easy thing to be a Christian today. It has never been. But it seems unusually difficult at a time like this, in an age where Christians are pressured to accept the whole LGBTQ and all that transgender as another lifestyle choice, where our children are being indoctrinated and shoved down with these false ideologies, or workplaces that create an environment of conform to this false agenda or get out. The church is failing to take a stand, a stand to believe in God's truth. Christians then must wake up to the truth of these alarming words from Jude to contend for the faith. Christianity requires Vigilance, not merely winsomeness. And in an effort to contend for the faith and stand for the truth, there are three important points I'd like to make from our text that will help us to be vigilant. Number one, the characteristics that we must recognize of the ungodly. Now, as we said, false teaching is followed by false living, and you can always tell the false teacher by how they're living. And so Jew's point is that these false teachers can be identified by their character, by their fruits, by their actions. So add to these 13 characteristics of the false teachers, seven more. Now we know that Jude is adding to the list of characteristics of these false teachers by by this word, these, in verse 16. These are grumblers, finding fault. Jude uses these like an accusing finger, exposing the characteristics of their ungodliness. I want you to look how Jude has done this repeatedly. In verse 8, These filthy dreamers. Verse 10. These men revile the things which they do not understand. Verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs. And as we'll see shortly in verse 14, Enoch prophesied of these to judgment. And now in verse 16, Jude once again uses the unflattering these. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And then Jude finishes his his thoughts on the characteristics of the false teachers in verse 19 with the final D's. These are the ones who cause divisions 
Worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. You see, Jew will not let us take our eyes off of these false teachers, these apostates for a moment. Remember, these are men who have the appearance of godliness, who have crept unnoticed. These come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And Jude keeps on hunting them down, pulling off their mask, exposing them for what they are. These, these, these. Well, firstly, these are grumblers. Grumblers are also known as murmuring. And it describes those stricken with such discontent that it expresses itself not in loud, outspoken outcries, but in muttered undertones. In 1 Corinthians 10.10, it is used of the low mutterings of resentment on the part of the sulking and thankless people of Israel in the wilderness. The Israelites had opposed God, and in the sin of grumbling, they had put God to the test, which led to their unbelief. And like the wilderness generation, the false teachers were dissatisfied with their lot and therefore with God. Grumblers are those who react to a sense of having been wronged and they express their discontent. Remember the parable Jesus gave of the parable of the landowner who needed men to work in his vineyard and he went out early in the morning and hired all the workers he could find? He agreed to pay them a denarius, a normal day's wage for their work. And about nine o'clock, he went out again and found other workers. He hired them too, but this time there was no set wage. He merely said in verse 4, Matthew 20, I will pay you whatever is right. The new workers agreed with the arrangement and soon joined the others. And the owner did the same at noon, at three in the afternoon, at five o'clock, just one hour before quitting time. And at the end of the day, he paid the workers, beginning with those he hired last. He gave each one in that group a denarius. And so on with those hired at 3 o'clock, at noon, and 9 in the morning. And at last, he came to those who were hired first. But by that time, they were rubbing their hands together happily, supposing that if those who had worked less than they had worked were being paid a denarius, they would receive more. But the owner paid them a denarius too. And do you remember what Jesus said of those workers when they received it? They grumbled at the landowner. The root problem was their swollen pride, a view of themselves, and they felt they had been wrong and envious of the ones who had been treated kindly. And the owner replied, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last as the same I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? This is the problem for anyone who thinks that because they have served God faithfully for how many years, they deserve something from Him. We do not. I say it again. We never deserve God's favors. And if we think we do, we are in danger of losing them entirely. But these false teachers unjustly feel like the victims and so they grumble how opposite is the servant of god that god delights in who has done everything he has been told to do and he says i am nevertheless an unprofitable servant i have only done my duty principally then grumbling is against god and isn't it very telling that whenever a man gets out of touch with god he is likely to begin 
complaining about something? You see, grumbling is followed by fault finding. It is very easy to find fault in the Christian church because we are sinners and we sin daily. There are all kinds of things to find fault in the church, but these men took a delight in their fault finding. These are experts at seeing the speck in your eye. Oh, they were good at seeing the speck, but blinded by seeing the planks in their eye. These men were like that. You know, I I have the same feeling about those criticizing the church and fault finding with the people of God as I would if someone walked around my late mother and constantly finding fault with her. I would be the first to realize that my mom isn't perfect, wasn't perfect. She made a lot of mistakes. She made many errors. There were flaws in her character. But it would have been a cheap shot. It would have been undignified for someone to go around finding fault with my mother. Well, not in the same way, but in the same intensity. I love this church like I love my mother. I honor and respect this congregation. And every time I hear skeptical, sarcastic criticisms of it, I have that same feeling as if someone were walking around criticizing my mother. Now Spurgeon says, you know the sort of people alluded to here. Nothing ever satisfied them. They are discontented even with the gospel. The bread of heaven must be cut into three pieces and served on dainty napkins or else they cannot eat it. And very soon their souls hate even this light bread. There is no way by which a Christian man can serve God so as to please them. They will pick holes in every preacher's coat. And if the great high priest himself were here, they would find fault with the color of the stones of his breastplate. Oh, beware of grumbling and fault finding. Nothing could be more contrary to the spirit of the Lord Jesus than a muttering, discontented spirit. These men are grumblers and fault finders, nitpickers. And they follow their own egotistical desires, following, it says, after their own lust. Now, Jude now sets forth the real cause of their discontent. Their course of conduct, you see, is not governed by the word of God, but by their own lust, their own sinful desires and cravings. Following is this progressive motion, and it implies the course and the tenor of someone's life. What Jude writes regarding those who follow their own desires are the same description in the New Testament as those who are unregenerate, those who do not know God. The Apostle Paul put it plainly in 1 Thessalonians 4-5 that those who live in lustful passion do not know God. Like Jeremiah said of his people in his day, my people, my people have done two evils. One, they have departed from me, the living God. And they have hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. How foolish to refuse to follow God and receive the fountain of living waters and follow after the lust of our flesh, which in the end are not able to meet our spiritual needs, just as a cracked cistern allows its contents to seep away. When you follow the desires of your own lust, the inevitable result is dissatisfaction with what life brings them. Lust is the disease of the soul. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, has said, Lust, let alone, beginneth our hell. It is a burning heat that at length breaketh out into everlasting flames. Moreover, Jude says, they speak arrogantly. 
Or I like the King James Version here. Their mouth speaketh great swelling words. They are loud mouth boasters. Well, I like what Aristotle said about the one who boasts, that the boaster is a man who pretends to, be, to have credible qualities that he does not possess or possesses in a lesser degree than he makes out. In other words, they talk big. They speak not to express their sincere inner convictions, but to impress others. To hear them talk, one would think that they are the very epitome of sound scholarship. Friends, this is an accurate description of the words of many liberal preachers and false cultists. They are accomplished orators, holding audiences spellbound by their grandiose rhetoric. Their smooth, cunning words attract undiscerning people. And what their sermons lack in content, they make up in charismatic and dramatic presentation. But when they have finished, they've said nothing. Those, they, these are those with great swelling words. They say a lot, and they say it loudly, but they say nothing. Jude then mentions their obvious goal. Flattering people, it says, for the sake of gaining an advantage. Now, flattering people is literally admiring faces. It's an expression of flattering admiration of important people whom they seek to impress for the sake of gaining an advantage. That is, that is either to gain people to their own party, to convince people of their own opinions, or for profit's sake. Now, the striking example of this is in Absalom. If you turn to 2 Samuel 15, when his people, when he was flattering people to kick his father out of his throne. Now, Absalom was a man with a deep-seated resentment against his father. This is where his story starts. Uh, remember, um, that David was very disapproving of Absalom for his actions and in killing his brother, and therefore Absalom was banished from the royal court. And however much David had been convinced that he and his son were reconciled, there is not the slightest doubt that Absalom was entirely unrepentant. Absalom thought that he was the better man for the job of being king. And so he came, and he started working the crowd, coming early. And standing outside the courthouse, starting conversations with those coming and waiting to have their cases decided. And you see his tactic right here. He was finding a way to criticize his father without seeming to be merely complaining, but always appearing to be holding the moral high ground. He would then listen to his fellow's dilemma, acting like he really cared for them. And he said, look, your claims are valid and proper but there is no representative of the king to hear you. You see what Absalom was doing. There he is, flattering people, curring their favor and instilling in their minds a bad opinion of the present rulership. But then he drops the strongest hint that he was actually flattering people, pretending to listen for his own advantage. Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has a suit or case could come to me, and I could give them justice. Oh, that I were the judge. That was his true ambition. There was no sincere thought of really helping people. But here's the real evil of Absalom. Verse 6 of 2 Samuel 15 says, He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom duped them, and he caused division in Israel. 
Now, isn't this the great evil that Jude continues to speak of in verse 19? That these are the ones who cause divisions? This is yet another mark of a false teacher. Their end was to tear asunder the community of building up the believers together. You see, these men find it so easy to divide, to pull down, but hard to build up. You see, love does that. Love has a tender heart and seeks to unite than to divide. But that's what these false teachers are. They seek to divide and separate and keep them in the ignorance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. They are sheep stealers. Paul writes in Romans 16, 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. The believer is to be on guard against those who come to divide. And separate the local churches. Finally, Jude wants us to know the mark, the mark of the false teacher. He says that they are worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. In the end, the false teacher might be by human standards a good man. He might be a very learned and well-read individual. He might wow you with his oratory skills and eloquent speech. He might give appearances to faith and spiritual life. He might even appear to care for you. But none of these things is the acid test. Devoid of the Spirit. That is what marks him. That is the final point that Jude wants to make concerning the characteristics of these false teachers. He was never born of the Spirit. He is worse than an ordinary man. For the ordinary natural man may have never heard the gospel. But the false teacher has heard the gospel of good news. He has fully understood the truth in Jesus Christ. He's even made some kind of profession of faith in Christ. But in the end... He is worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. These men, Jude says, are among you. And not only are these false teachers among us, they are very much at ease at church. Remember what Jude says back in verse 12. They feast with you without fear. <laughs> they have no business to be in communion with God's people, but there they are. Without the slightest fear. They had no fear of examining their lives, whether they are saved or not. They are very much at ease in the church. They have no qualms about the frauds they are practicing. They listen to sermons. They give up great appearances of worshiping God. All without the slightest fear. There is no sense of shame because of their conduct. And the purpose of Jude in exposing the characteristics of the false teachers is not only meant for believers to be aware and therefore vigilant against them, but it is meant to ask ourselves, do these characteristics speak of me? Am I amongst the congregation of God's people without the slightest fear? My fear is that those who are truly humble and godly will feel this the most. And those who need most to scrutinize their lives will say, I'm really glad the preacher is saying these things, but what he has to say it doesn't apply to me. Remember William Cooper's words. He that never doubted of his state, he may perhaps, he may too late. So ask yourselves, have I really repented or was it all a sham? Am I really right with God? Do I love Him? Am I serving Him because I love Him? Or am I fascinated with people praising me? Is my ambition for God and His glory alone? Or am I after the glory of myself? Am I being governed by the Word of God or the lust of my own flesh? 
Is my life characterized by grumbling and fault finding or gratitude and thankfulness unto God for all things? Beloved, I implore you to dig deep into your hearts. The message of Judas is that he's giving is let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And the reason that we must take heed of ourselves, the characteristic of these false teachers is secondly, the fate that we must be aware of the false teachers, the fate. There is a judgment to come and it awaits those who are ungodly. And to support his argument of the judgment to come upon the false teachers, he quotes from an interesting source, the book of Enoch. Verse 14, it was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord has come with that many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. Now, I know there are some here who still have a hard time finding a book in the Bible, such as when the preacher says, turn to one of the minor prophets and you are still scrambling to find that book. Where is Obadiah at, right? But even those who have a difficult time turning to a book in the Bible, know that if the preacher says, turn to the book of Enoch, you know not even to turn your Bibles because you will not find it there. So why then does Jude quote the book of Enoch? Did Jude consider the book of Enoch to be like Genesis or Isaiah? Let me try to quickly answer these questions. The book is what scholars call the pseudopigraphical book. It's a book written in the name of somebody who didn't write it. It's a book attributed to someone who didn't write it. Now, there, there are reasons to attribute this book under the name of Enoch. For Enoch is noteworthy in the Bible as a righteous man who walked with God. And it says that he was no more because God took him. He's also identified here as the seventh generation from Adam. And in Jewish thinking, seven is a sacred number, most sacred number, and it's a sign of God's grace. And so the fact that he was the first man recorded to have walked with God and to have been taken by God without dying, united with the number seven, led to his portrayal of having a knowledge of the secrets of the supernatural world, and therefore various apocryphal works came to be ascribed to his name. It was highly regarded by several early early uh, Christian church fathers, one of which was Tertullian, who said, I think I'm saying that right, but I'm, I'm not sure. There was a prophecy of Enoch kept by Noah in the ark, which book is now lost. Be that as is may. Many good books may be lost, but listen, no scripture is lost. Moreover, Lenski, an old German commentator, is technically right when he says, Jude quotes Enoch, not some book of the Bible. Jude merely says Enoch prophesied. He did not say it is written as quoting a passage of scripture. Why then quote Enoch's prophecy? Well, the book of Enoch may have been the literature that these false teachers appeal to. And so Jude may be quoting from a book that they liked in order to emphasize a point that he could have supported from a number of passages in the Old Testament. It does not mean that Jude accepted the book of Enoch as inspired or approved of everything in it. It simply means that under the leading and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, he accepted these words as true. Jude doesn't want us to get us hung up on the choice of quoting Enoch prophesied, but the content, the content of his prophecy. Let us observe some of the elements of this judgment. First, I want us to observe the manner of the Lord's coming and purpose with his angels. And then it's followed by the fourfold repetition of the word ungodly. Now these may oppose as theologians and pastors. These might dress themselves in religious robes, but the Lord will convict them 
of their ungodliness, both in action and words. This word convict in verse 15 is not the ordinary word used of the Holy Spirit of convicting sin, but it's actually an intensified form of that word. These ungodly will be shown thoroughly to be wrong. It will establish their guilt beyond all doubt to their own shame. Again, this will not be the day of decision. This will not be the day of repentance. There will be no hope for any redemption here. But the purpose is to thoroughly convince them of all their sins. Even in hell, Charles Simeon says, they will be compelled to say, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Second, I want you to notice that this judgment will be universal. The Lord will judge all. All who have lived in this wretched world will be summoned up before Christ the judge. Doesn't matter if you're old or you're young, rich or poor, alive or dead, because even the dead will come forth out of their graves and stand together at his tribunal. None will be overlooked. None will escape. The most secret notions of their hearts will be brought to light. You cannot sit lightly because the Lord is coming to judge all. The Lord will divide everyone into two groups, the godly and the ungodly. And so this judgment will be both comprehensive and universal in nature. But thirdly, this, this judgment that is to come is dreadful beyond our imagination. Now Jude speaks of the dreadfulness of judgment in the end of verse 13, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Judgment is described here as black darkness. It is Hebraism for exceeding great darkness, expressing the extreme misery and horror and torment which is in hell. Friends, the essence of hell is where God is not. And in the most terrifying words of hell that you can find in Scripture, I believe is in Matthew 7, Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, away where God is not. And this torment lasts for eternity. The judgment to come is a fact to be gripped by. We need to face up to that. I wonder if we all live up in light of that coming day. Do we live in the burning inevitability of that coming day. You know, on one occasion, someone asked John Wesley, if you knew that Jesus Christ was returning tomorrow, what would you do? <laughs> he took out his diary, and he said, I go to this village at 10, and that village at 12, and another at 3, and another at 6. Of course, what he was trying to say is that I wouldn't change anything. I'm continuing to do what I'm doing today. Can you say that? Would we be frantically reordering our lives? Or would we say before God, I wouldn't change a thing. Can you say, amen, come Lord Jesus, because that day will come an everlasting divide of the just and the unjust. It will bring the everlasting ruin of the unsaved. And friend, if you're here this afternoon and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, and you haven't embraced him, him who has come into the world to save sinners, let me do what Paul did to the church in Corinth. I say, I beseech you, be reconciled 
to God. Find in Christ a refuge for the coming wrath. Find in Him a shelter for the righteous, the just and unmerciful wrath of the Holy God. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come to Jesus Christ then, for He alone delivers us from the wrath to come. And in an effort to contend for the faith, we have noted the characteristics we must recognize of the false teachers. The fate we must beware of the false teachers. And now thirdly, the strategy we must apply against the false teachers. Now beginning in verse 17, Jude's tenor is entirely different. In the preceding sections, his aim was to expose and condemn those false teachers intruding into the churches. Here, the aim is to provide faithful believers with a strategy to fight the apostates. And this is signaled by this contrast. But you, beloved. Beloved is a term of endearment for the believer. You often hear the pastors referring to you as beloved. It means that you are God's beloved children. It's the name that God refers to his beloved son. And Jude says, but you, beloved. In contrast to these wicked men, this is how you are to live. But as for you, in contrast to the mark of these apostates, this is how you are to live. These wicked men, we saw that scripture was neither authoritative nor sufficient. They were not constrained by the authority of God's truth. They were men devoid of the spirit. But you says, but you, beloved, in contrast to them. And he gives a first strategy for the believers to be vigilant for the truth to remember he says but you beloved ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our lord jesus christ that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers the great word is remember do you realize that to remember has always been god's strategy for his people in godliness and perseverance When Moses preached his farewell sermon to the Israelites about to enter the promised land, he warned them, beware that you do not forget the Lord, your God, by not keeping his commandments. There in a sentence is the grand strategy to live faithfully to God. Do not forget him. Remember him. Remember his word. God's people then as now were plagued with spiritual amnesia. That is why with great force, And with great repetition, God says that the remedy and the strategy that you need against the wicked influence of the world is to remember because forgetfulness of God and his word is a major cause of spiritual deterioration. Now here in Jude, he speaks specifically that they would remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what words specifically are those words that you and I are to remember? That in these last times, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Jude has in mind 2 Peter 3, who warns about mockers who scoff at the apparent delay of the return of Jesus Christ. He has in mind Acts 20, where Paul warned the Ephesian elders to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, because savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw disciples away from them. And Jude probably has a bunch of verses that he wanted to warn of false teachers. Why is he saying that? Why is he telling us to remember that? Surely because he wants to emphasize that they should never be surprised by the presence of false teachers and apostates. Perhaps Jude fears that his congregation will be overly optimistic about life 
hoping that if they lie low for a little while, the storm will pass, that things will get better. But Jude gives no such hope. The whole prediction of the New Testament is that there will be a terrible apostasy upon the world. In these last days, difficult times will come. And the world will be full of mockers who ridicule the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the last days that we are living in now. And I say, therefore, then rather than allow ourselves to be depressed and discouraged by the present state of our world, we ought to see it as what one of the most striking confirmations and proofs that the word of God is true. And thus be ready to stand for the truth of the gospel. He says apostasy and the presence of false teachers are to be expected. Recognize that there is never a time when you're completely safe from false teaching. You must be on the alert. Jude is telling us to remember the warnings, to beware of the ever-present danger of wolves and sheep's clothing so that we would be ready to stand watch against the false teachers. Don't be surprised, Jude says. Remember. But there's another part of remember that I'd like to close with. You see, we cannot remember something we have never known any more than we can remember someone we have never met. It is so important then to constantly remember the Lord and remember His Word. The solemn truth of godliness is that when it comes to spiritual things, you get what your heart sets on. This is at the core of what it means to remember You get what your heart sets on. Set your heart on knowing God and He will reveal Himself and His will for you through His Word. Set your heart on God and you will be safe. But listen, set your heart of nothing of spiritual consequence. That is precisely what you will get. Nothing of spiritual consequence. And worse, you will be easy prey to false teaching. For the time will come, Paul warns, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. May we all remember the Lord. Remember His Word and set our hearts on God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for how timely it is in our lives. For it warns us of the ever-present danger of false teaching and ungodliness. We confess as your church, we have not contended for the faith as we ought. We have not been the beacon of light in a dark and depraved world. We confess we have cowered when we ought to have been bold. We confess we drink from the polluted streams of sin instead of the living waters of righteousness. And as a result, we refuse contentment in you and crave what others have. We confess our grumbling and complaining hearts and that we have failed to remember your word. Have mercy on us, gracious Father, and bring us back into the submission of your word. Awaken our slumbering hearts so as not to succumb to the error of false teaching that prevails outside the church and also within the church. So make us vigilant for the truth. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, your beloved Son. Amen.